hospitality. Uh, I, I, uh, I uh, want to just uh, thank uh, Pastor Rob and the elders and the missions team on behalf of Entrusted Word Ministries for all that they've done for us, for John and Laura, and all the work, and we hope the, the long and fruitful relationship. Um, but this morning, we get to, instead of just multiply the message, we get to hear the message. We get to revel in God's word and what he has done for us. And I'm going to look at this, since you get to pick some, when you get to guest preach, you get to pick the passage sometimes. I was like, oh, you're doing a missions thing this weekend. Do I have to preach on missions? You know, Matthew 28. And like, no. He said, you get to pick what you want. So I get to pick one of my favorite passages. Honestly, as, as a believer, um, it's probably been more instrumental in my understanding of how the Bible goes together, how I live, etc., cetera, uh, than probably any other passage. And it might sound strange, but um, I think it'll be your favorite passage when we're all done. So if you have a favorite passage, I'm challenging it this morning with this one. Because what it does is it provides a fundamental understanding on which we can build the way we evaluate, grow in, and live out our Christian lives. So if you think about it, it's kind of like a tree. You got this trunk and you got these branches or limbs and then the branches and then the leaves and then the fruit and everything that comes off of it. This provides that foundation about our life and how we look at it and how it relates to others. My danger this morning is when you start with a trunk and go to the trees and go to the limbs and go to the leaves and go to the fruit and guess what you want to do as a preacher? Just keep going. Hey, and there's more over here and more over here and more over here, but I'm going to try to keep it down. But hopefully this is, will give you a really good framework to begin putting other pieces in the scriptures together. Because Paul is dealing with, he does that big therefore. We're going to get to that in a second. But whenever Paul, after 11 chapters of setup, goes therefore, it's important. That's why this, this is such a pivotal passage that we're looking at this morning. And I think it's, particularly important today, especially since, uh, I'm not going to say everybody, but, you know, I've been around a long time, been in a lot of churches, and it seems to be we're, we're slipping further and further and further away from God's Word and thinking, forgive me for saying that, but we're so captivated by emotion and we're so captivated by sensing and feeling and all those types of things. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with those things. But they're not the basis of living the Christian life. They come out of the Christian life, but they don't control it. And unfortunately, we seem to be in a society that is controlled that way and it's much to our detriment. I mean, how often... Just in our language use, how often have you heard somebody say, I just feel that, or it just feels right, or it feels better, or um, I don't feel this? How many times do you really hear somebody say, I think, and then follow it up with the reasoning? Of course, I'm not even sure the word reasoning, think, and follow up matters in our society anymore, and that's how bad it's gotten, all right? So... It's really important for us to be on guard because this is where Paul gives a great warning and encouragement about that stopping to think about God's word. And again, I'm not saying emotions are not important. They are in their proper place. So we're going to talk about the foundation of our living uh, and there's other things that will, will come out of that. But as we look at the passage this morning, we're going to see that there is, I'll call it an insidious, a creeping, you know, think of something sinister, that's creeping into the thinking of believers, even in Bible-believing churches, because what do we live in? We live in an imperfect, we live in a fallen, and we live in an increasingly hostile environment with a thinking pattern that gets to the point where you don't even know if there's thinking anymore. And it starts affecting us. But we're going to have to resist it. But we have to resist it properly and in proper order. So that's what we're going to focus on this morning. And I'm not going to focus on our motives. 
you know, our love for the Lord. We're not going to look at other means of grace because, you know, prayer and fellowship and all those other kinds of things. We're not going to be looking at those, but they are limbs and branches off this foundation. And there's a lot of other things we could talk about. So we're going to keep a very clear focus this morning on the direct relationship between our thinking and our living. It's a one-to-one. That's really what it's going to be about. And from there, everything else flows. Our lives are going to be controlled by our thought. And that's what Paul tells us. So if you like sermon titles and you like to put them together, the sermon title is Be Transformed. I could make it really long like the Puritans, you know, some long sentence, but simple. Be Transformed. And we're going to look at three questions. The first question we're going to look at is, what is the primary way we worship God? Because this is going to have a direct relationship to our worship. Second question we're going to look at is how does our thinking impact our Christian living? Because it is, and it's going to be very significant. And finally, since it's going to be dealing with our thinking, and Paul talks about renewing our mind, what are a few, and I'm just going to toss out a few things at the end, some practical ways that we can work on that process? So those are the three questions we're going to try to address. There's a million more we could, but I'm just going to try to keep focused on that. So what is the primary way we, ser- we worship? Aren't we in a worship service today? Isn't this all about worship? Isn't this we're coming to church, we're worshiping, okay, I'm done? Isn't that it? Many people think that's it. Paul doesn't talk about any of that. He doesn't even mention it. Not saying that there's anything wrong with it. It's critical, it's important, so don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not telling you don't come to church, okay? Sorry, I was a pastor for 20 years. You don't tell congregation, oh, yeah, you, can, you don't have to come to church. No, it's important. But that's not what it's about. It does not transform your life. It's part of your transformed life. Big difference. So let me just read verse 1 again. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. The thing that I want to point out here is that, there, therefore, we sang and read all of these Wonderful things. We've gone all the way from who God, who Christ is. You've gone through who man is, what they're going to live like. We're all guilty. I mean, all the way through the book of Romans, he spent 11 chapters trying to get us to understand who we are and who he is. And then he says, based on that, based on all of that, therefore, I'm going to make an appeal to you. And he calls them brothers. So he's not just talking to anybody. He's saying, you are believers. Or I'm going to call you that because I don't know any better than that. That's who you proclaim to be. That's where you are. You are my brothers. So this isn't just some abstract statement to anybody. This is only applicable to believers. And there's a little curious phrase he puts here. He says, by the mercies of God. And... You know, when you're studying the attributes of God and that kind of stuff, you, and when we start throwing language around, we, we kind of get tied up and say, well, mercy and compassion and kindness and empathy and sympathy and all those kind of things are all the same kind of things. They really aren't. If you look at what a mercy is, a mercy really is only something that can be given once guilt is assigned. When you, when you picture a court scene or a king, somebody coming before, before the king and have mercy, have mercy. Well, what's, what's the predicate or predecessor to the claiming of having mercy? I didn't do anything wrong, I'm good. It's I'm guilty. I deserve what I'm getting. Have mercy. That's where God says, by his mercy... And not just a mercy, his mercies. And it's going to apply to our justification, our sanctification, every area of life. God has said, I sent my son to die for you, guilty people. And until you realize that you're guilty, I can't grant you any mercy. Because that's what mercy requires. 
You have to be recognized for who you are to be given God's mercy. So as we begin this and we see what's going to happen, that's the position we have to enter it with. All about who he is, all about who we are, all about what he's done. And he's going to make the appeal to those who now say, yes, I am guilty. Only in your son Jesus do I find salvation. Please, God, grant me mercy. And he says, I have. And I'm going to continue. So let's really look at now the principal question and answer. So what is the primary way of worship? We worship God. Paul says the appeal is to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Really simply stated, your life is how you worship God. Part of that life is here corporately worshiping God with the proper attitudes, with the other things that come along with that. That's part of it. But it's not when we walk out this door, I've stopped worshiping. Every single day of our lives, we are worshiping. And the people around you at work, at home, in your neighborhood, at the ball field, wherever, are going to see whether you're worshiping God or the world by your life. And he's making an association. By the way, all of these things I've mentioned so far are each sermons in and of themselves. So I've spared you. Those are three sermons right there. I'm going to have Rob, you know, he's going to do it next week. He'll He'll fill in the blanks. Because what, he, the, what Paul is, is alluding to back is the what are acceptable sacrifices in the Old Testament. Because when you came before God with a, an acceptable sacrifice, and there were unacceptable sacrifices, you know, Nadab and Abihu, eh, probably wasn't such a good sacrifice. Don't bring something dead. Don't bring something unblemished. Don't, you know, those were unacceptable, but they were sacrifices, right? He says, no, no, no. Your life has to be acceptable. And it's a living sacrifice. Have you ever thought about the sacrifices? Sacrifices were always dead. They were already cut down. They were lifeless. You and I get to present a living sacrifice, an ongoing sacrifice, every single day. And what kind of sacrifice is it? Is it a meh, whatever sacrifice? You know, the the great meh. Yeah, that's, that's all I need to do. You know, if the minimum wasn't good enough, it wouldn't be the minimum. I'm saved, we're done. You know, it was the thief on the cross, that was it. He just had to believe, we're good. Really? Is that the sacrifice that he made for you and me? Is that the attitude any of us should have? That well, I'm saved, I believe in Jesus, we're all done. Too many people in the church think, I believe and then I come to church and we're done. That isn't it. The, exact, the, the sacrifice is a living one that is holy, meaning set apart, meaning not like everything else, and it's acceptable to God. So it's not like one of those dead, blemished sacrifices on the wrong day for the wrong thing. Eh, pigeon's good enough. Yeah, I should be giving you a ram, but yeah, it's okay. He said, he said no, that's based on what he's done, what my appeal is to you, because it is your spiritual service of worship. And if it, it, it's not really even about church, is it? Because Jesus, when he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, I'm going to read the passage. He says, to the, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said, To her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 
God is spirit, and for those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. It's not about a place. It's not about just a thing. It's about a heart. All these things have to come together to be what he is appealing us to be. And he says, okay, your life is your spiritual worship. And he goes on from there. Because the next question we have to ask is, you know, what's gonna, what does that mean, Paul? And so this leads us to our second question. How does our thinking impact our Christian living? Because he says right here in verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I'm going to do something that I don't do in sermons, but I'm going to do it anyway. I've actually tested this out. It seems to work, so we'll see if it works in Arkansas. Works, we're higher altitude, so maybe we're hypoxic and it, it worked, but I have here this wonderful little cup, right? It is just beautifully designed to hold water. And unfortunately, this is what too many people in the world look like. Look at how beautiful I am. Too many people in the church, look at how wonderful I am. I've got my ducks in the row, my family, they're all dressed the same thing. They can quote all the Sunday school verses. I got everything all lined up. It's all perfect. Believe me, I've served in ministry for many, many, many years, and that ain't true. I wish it was, but it isn't. This is really what we look like. For all of you who can't see, I have done severe damage to this cup by drilling holes in it and cracking it, and breaking it. And I dare tell you that this probably is not one you want at the fellowship afterwards if you're going to drink much, because, you know, it, it doesn't hold water. This is the reality of the world, regardless of what they think they look like. And unfortunately, this is the reality of believers, because it is the reality of believers. Because you're saved does not make those holes go away. Not yet. So we're going to follow this little cup's journey through this text. Bet you didn't know that you could be a cup, but you are. So I have five observations about this text. I want to, well, before I start, I want to, I want to point out one thing just so nobody gets depressed. This is who we are. This is the reality of who we are. However, in Christ Jesus, that's how God sees us. We are that perfect cup. We do have a purpose in him. This is eternity. This is what we have to work on now. This is what God sees because of his son. This is where we are and what Paul is addressing, this holy cup. So five observations. First observation is our thinking only leads to two ways, and it's going to be to conformity or transformation. You're going to be either conformed or you're going to be transformed. The first part of the, the verse it says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And those two options, the, the, the grammar in the Greek is quite fascinating. They are what is referred to as a present passive imperative. So now you guys know Greek. Um, or it's also referred to as a permissive imperative. But let me break that down to tell you what in English it means. If you're an English grammarian, maybe you can get it from the English. I couldn't. I'm not that good with English. But that basically means that a present tense says, right now, all the time, right now. Continuing on every day, every moment. Now and now and now and now. That's what a present means. So it's not, it's not necessarily, it's not the past and it's not the future. It's right now. So in other words, our daily lives. The second part of it is it's an imperative. That means a command. Okay? So right now, I'm commanding you. But the weird part of it is it's passive. 
you go, present, passive, imperative. How do I have a command that is passive? Well, that basically says a permission. You're not the actor. Something's acting on you. You know, they always, you know, chided you, don't write, you know, passive sentences and passive language and all that kind of stuff. Well, here you're commanded to not let this passive thing happen. Don't, don't let it happen. So you're commanded not to allow yourself to be conformed every single moment. And that particular word for conformed is a, another word that you're probably familiar with. We have an English equivalent. It's a schema, a schematic. And that word means to be made in the fashion or patterned after. So when you say, here's the box, this is the diagram, the schematic, this is patterned after that. And he says, don't let yourself be patterned after what? The world, the age, all right? We're going we're to get a little delineation here a little bit later on. But don't let yourself be patterned after the world. And again, that's that passive. Don't let it get you this way. Don't let it take you, who is a, a believer, brother, and sister, to become like it. He says, but I want you to let yourself be transformed. And that's another word that we're familiar with, metamorphosis. And that particular word, you know, you've heard of metamorphic rock. You know, Laura's a geolog geologic engineer. She can tell you all about metamorphic rock. So you thought we ran out of things to talk about. But an easier one, a chrysalis, a cocoon becomes a butterfly or a moth. Because what this word means is the inward change in fundamental character or condition. So he says, I don't want you to allow yourself to look like and be patterned after this world, but I do want you to allow yourself to be transformed, to have a fundamental in, internal change in condition and character. And he sets these apart by the strongest way in Greek you can do it, an adversative. In other words, absolutely don't let that happen. Absolutely let this happen. But it's, it's interesting. How can you passively be transformed? You're like, I, don't I need to do something? I have to passively not let myself happen this, and I have to passively allow myself to be that. That's kind of weird. Well, you ever, ever worried about those passages that says, you know, don't quench the spirit? You go, what in the world is that? It, you know, God's working at me. How can I do that? Well, you need to let the spirit work on your life. You need to let the word of God work on your life. You can say, no, I'm not going to do it. Well, don't show up when there's a study. Don't read. Don't, don't do it. Guess what? You're not letting it happen. You got to let it work on you. And he says, don't let the world work on you, which is where we are almost all the time, is in the world. It's working on us constantly. Don't let it. So those are your two options. Now, there's an implication out of that. That means that a believer, because he's talking to believers, brothers, can be conformed to the world if you let it. You ever thought about that? I thought we were all good Christians here. We couldn't let the devil get into us. We couldn't let the bad things of the world affect us. Oh, yeah, we can. All you got to do is let it happen. Get in a river. What happens when you just float there? You stay right there by the dock, right? Nope. Now, I grew up in Florida, and I can tell you that you start here, you walk out into the water, and you're standing there, and suddenly you find out you're 500 yards down the beach. And you're like, I was just playing in the water. Yeah, every time you went up, the way took you a little further and a little further and a little further, and suddenly you're down like, where's mom? Where's dad? Where'd they go? 
you know, little kids get freaked out by that. So moms and dads, when you go to Florida or any place, watch your kids by the water. Because that's what's going to happen. Because they're not going to pay attention. They're going to let it happen. That's what, that's what happens to believers who permit themselves to be conformed and don't let themselves to be transformed. Now, we'll go back to our little cup here. These holes, are we going to let them get bigger? Or are we going to start patching them? Are we going to start doing things that are going to work that way? Now, I told you that this, this doesn't, um, doesn't help you if you're an unbeliever. And right now you could say, well, if I patch this hole and patch this hole and patch this hole, things are going to get better, right? It's going to hold more water. Well, if I've done my sleight of hand correctly or you're far enough away and don't have your glasses on, you may recognize that there's a big problem with this cup. I don't care how much water you pour into this cup, this massive hole in the bottom of it is not going to let it, regardless of how good you make it look over here, no matter how much patching up you do, you're not going to hold any water on here. If anything, the vortex to hell is, you know, it's like, here's my funnel, right? You know, all right, that's, that's what's going to happen. But fortunately, God has a solution to that problem. He has this little patch. I bet you didn't know that this was your justification. Because, see, once you're justified, and I'm not very good at tape. I flunked scissors and glue in preschool. Probably skipped that lesson. Guess what? Pretend that actually sealed. You have to use your imagination. Guess what happens when I put this patch on the bottom of the cup? When I'm justified, when I am a brother if I pour water in here, it might not hold much, but it's going to hold some. And that's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever and being saved, but haven't grown in our sanctification. And you can still be saved, but none of the rest of this hole gets patched up. So, okay, yeah, I'm the thief on the cross. Really don't want to be the thief on the cross because there's an imperative command that says don't stay like that. Unless you're dying tomorrow, you know, maybe that'll happen. But that's not our life as normative believers. The difference is this cup will now hold a little bit of water because it is now in Christ. That's how God looks at you. This is what you still look like, but you can hold water. This is the difference in the life of a believer. Second observation. The means of being transformed is based on the renewing of the mind. So that's what he, he basically tells us. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Now, that, it's kind of a, a strange thing. We're going to come back and talk a little bit more details about this. But when the scriptures are speaking about us interacting in the world, it talks a lot about uh, words that are dealing with thinking. I won't read you the Greek words, but there's just, there's a bunch of words, and they're always dealing with the mind or thinking or reasoning. And if you really understand what's going on, even in our salvation, it is, uses a word, repent, right? Doesn't repent just mean I'm sorry? No. Repent does not mean I'm sorry. Too many people think, see, okay, you need to repent of that. Okay, I'm sorry. I've repented. Really? Because repent does not carry that meaning. Repent means to change one's way of thinking, your mind, the way you think about stuff. So if you keep hitting, you know, kids, if you keep hitting your sister after you said, I'm sorry, you have not repented. You have just said, I'm sorry, which is a good start. You have to admit you did something wrong. But you got to change your thinking. Your sister might bug you. Believe me, I just watched my granddaughter just bedevil my older grandson and he was, you know, he, he deserved it. She deserved it. Um, but you have to change the way you're thinking. The behavior must change. So even when you repent, what have you done? I hate God. Or, hey, he's okay. 
Yeah, he'll let me off. You've changed your thinking. Uh Uh-uh. No, he's not. He's just, he's holy. I'm okay. It's good enough. I'm not as bad as Hitler, you know, or, you know, we're starting to use that one a lot, but I'm not as bad as pick your favorite dictator, terrorist, murderer, whatever. I'm not as bad as them. No, 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 no. I'm worse. I'm the chief of all sinners. I'm, I'm, I'm with Paul on this one. I understand. See, you've changed your thinking about who you are, who God is, your relationship. Jesus is a nice teacher. No, Jesus is the Son of God, your only way for salvation. Change your thinking. That's repentance. Not just saying, I'm sorry. Sorry comes along with it. Recognizing that. And it's not a passive activity. It requires effort. Because to remain unrenewed is to become conformed. Quite straightforward. Now, we applied this to our little cup here. See, I've got a cup. I've got the bottom. I've got salvation in him. But I've got these wonderful patches. There's a blue patch and a red patch, a couple of them, some gold patches, all sorts of little patches here. Now, if I'm going to take these patches and I just take them and I go, look, there's my patches. Look how much has been fixed. Not much, has it? You guys see any fixing in the hole? If, you, if I pour water in here, you want to drink out of this cup of the fellowship? Probably not. Well, that's kind of like going to church. Wait a second, I thought you were supposed to go to church. Yeah, you are. But too many people get all tied up in this and go, I'm going to go to a good church. This is a good church. I'm around godly people. Pick them out. There they are. And it's kind of like if I took this and I started pouring water in it, what would happen to these little patches? They start floating up, right? They start swirling around the side as, you know, they start leaking and there's a hole and the pressure will start filling. Physics lesson. Hey, science experiment, moms. You can say, this is what happens. You pour that water in there and it's going to leak out. And sometimes those little patches are going to rub up against the, the hole and stop it. And you're going to go, great. I churched myself, Right? Well, what happens when the water stops pouring and things dry out and you get away from churchy stuff? What happens to you? You know, you know the coal and the fire and you move it away from the central core and all that other kind of wonderful stuff. What happens to the coal? It starts going out. What happens to the patch? You start realizing it never was patched. It never was a fit. It never went in there. It was just while I'm here, I look like the hole's fixed. That's why we do need to be who. See, one of the patches is already fleeing. No, 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 I don't need it. It's fine. You're not supposed to run away like that. Um, But see, what happens is we, we fill our lives with church, and we've not had our minds transformed. We have all sorts of passes. We have Bible verses. We have all sorts of stuff like that. But it never really transformed us because our thinking was never really renewed. We were just around a lot of godly people and heard a lot of godly sermons. I mean, believe me, I have sat down with pastors and they just shake their heads and bang their, they want to bang their head against the table. It's like I've been preaching God's word for 20 years to this same group of people and, you know, three of them have grown at all. They're playing church. So why do they not have a desire for God? Why do they not want to know his word? Why do they not want to serve? Why do they, well, why? Because it's just church. It's not about God. It's not about being transformed. That's what ends up happening. And I'm not saying that's here, but I, I think better of you, brothers and sisters. I know your pastor. But you got to, church, church is, a, a, is, is part of the, of the solution. But it does, in and of itself, does not solve it, right? Or else you can hear the Word of God preached. I think I'm going to listen to a televangelist. Yeah, maybe not. And see, when I'm teaching my Bible study, I, I go, okay, guys, is this churchianity or Christianity? There's a difference between those two things. We're talking about Christianity. Too many people talk about churchianity. So if that helps you remember this, 
use it because that helps me keep straight. Am I worrying about church? Nothing wrong with it. Or am I worrying about Christ and being conformed to his image? Am I being conformed to what I, my church does and what it says and what the pastor says? Or am I being conformed to what Christ says? Am I being imitators of him? Even the Bereans received it with joy and went and checked to see if it was true. If I went back 40 years of things I've taught, I have to repent because <laughs> I have changed my mind about many things I taught when I was younger. You kind of go, Lord, why did you let me teach that? Why did you let me open my big mouth? I need to repent of that. But that's good because we need to all grow. So third, a renewed thinking, third observation, renewed thinking is directly linked to our behavior. Because that's what it says. Because the purpose of being renewed is followed in the last part of verse 12. So that you may prove, it could be test, or I like in this particular context, translated as demonstrate. You may demonstrate what the will of God or his desire, what he wishes to happen, is. And then he describes what that is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And if you look at those particular words, and I'm not going to belabor them, is a lot of times we think of that which is good. Okay, I just need to do good deeds. That's good. Well, yes, in a sense, that's good. But when you look at the scriptures as a whole, what is good is the plans and purposes of God. We might think something is good, but what we want to be is in conformity with the plans and purposes of God. As God lays out what he would have us do in each and every one of our lives, that is what is good. Because what's he doing with it? He's working all things together for what? Good. See, that's why that, that golden chain that Paul already talked about in Romans 8. It's for those who are called according to his what? Purpose. So when we say, so that you can prove and demonstrate what God's will is, what he wants to have happen, what is good, that's what we want to be striving for. Not just do good deeds. And yes, good deeds are part of it, but sometimes they may not be where you should go because the scriptures are saying, don't go there. It sounds really good, right? It feels right. Oops, as soon as you start hearing it feels right, question yourself. I think the Bible teaches me this and here's why I would go that way. That's perfectly okay because we're all wrong sometimes. It's okay. And what's acceptable Go back to what would God have us do? What would be something that he would demonstrate is an acceptable sacrifice or pleasing sacrifice? And what's perfect? See, this is when I think a lot of times Christians go, well, I'm saved, it's good enough. It's like, no, he didn't call us to be good enough. He called us to the high moral standard, complete maturity, perfection, I'm teaching through Hebrews. I know you guys have gone through the book of Hebrews. I mean, just finished Hebrews chapter 6, which since he's still here, you guys didn't run him off when he went through Hebrews chapter 6. I just finished teaching through that. I'm like, you know, most pulpits you sit up there and say, you know, I think you guys are kind of bedwetters here, and I think you need to really worry about where you are, and we need to go deal with all this kind of stuff. Most churches would just throw you out. You say, yeah, I'm just reading Hebrews. With the he was worried about, don't turn back. I mean, all those different wonderful things. We don't want to hear that anymore. High standards, mature, grow. That's what we're called to be. Because that is what the will of God is. Paul rewrites that in, in, a, in another way that I, I think is also applicable in Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. It says, but do not... You did not learn Christ this way. 
If indeed you have heard him and been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside your old self, which is being corrupted in accordance to the lust of, lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, which has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And that truth is the only thing that's going to help us. And just like we're supposed to be, have our mind renewed to be transformed because of a purpose. Remember I said this cup has a purpose? This cup has a purpose. This one's already perfected. That's Christ. This cup has a purpose. It needs to hold water. And to serve its purpose, the holes have to be patched. Otherwise, what do we look like? We look like religious worldlings. You will be conformed to the image of the world. And how effective, I mean, God can do anything, of course, that you don't throw that argument at me. Yes, he can do anything. So we've cleared that one off the deck. Sure, he can, you know, he can use Hitler to save people. Yes, I, I, I taught a church history sermon, weird one, um, about how Islam and the rise of Islam saved the Protestant Reformation. Bet you didn't know that, but it did. I won't go into that sermon, but. You can say, wait a second, God permitted this for 900 years? It was terrible. Yeah, it, it was terrible, except it saved the Protestant Reformation. You can ask me at the break. Otherwise, we look like religious people. And too many of our churches are filled with religious people. They have the thought of the world, the thinking of the world, the acting of the world. Not of Christ, not of that standard, not of what is acceptable, not of what is good. Fourth, neither our emotions nor our physical abilities have changed, though they are now directed and controlled for God's use. If you think about it, God isn't trying to make you an emotional robot. He doesn't change you you know, if you're a person who has a perpetual smile on their face, praise God. God did not give me that short upper lip so that it goes like that. I, I mean, I had to glue it up like that, and I look like the Joker or something, you know? <laughs> Scary. Oh, no, don't make him smile. I, 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 I envy you. So when I was saved, God did not give me a big smile. That's okay. I am who I'm supposed to be. You are who you're supposed to be. You didn't grow six inches. You didn't lose 20 pounds. You didn't suddenly, your IQ points went up 40 points or down 30 or whatever you needed to have adjusted. Everything about you is the same. Your emotional makeup is the same. Everything about you is the same. And God is going to use that because he's going to change the direction and affections of your emotions and your being and your intellect to his purposes. You once loved sin, now you hate it. You once hated God, now you love him. You once rejoiced in evil, now you rejoice in the truth. And that's pretty amazing. You don't have to be something different when you're saved. You don't have to be something different to serve. You don't have to be something different. You take this broken cup and you patch the holes just as God gave you that cup, he will take care of everything else. Isn't that neat? You don't have to be something different. And I'll let all you happy, smiley people go out front and greet people because they'll go, Ooh, this guy's scary. He, why is he smiling like that, you know? I'm not a greeter. Some of you people are just amazing at it. Use it for God's will. That's what we talked about this morning in Sunday school. I know Greek, and I'm a geek, and I can use my talents in both areas to help God's people. 
You don't have to become me, and I don't have to become you. You guys are incredibly talented musicians, by the way. It's frightening. Um, blessed. Very blessed, folks. Um, so use them. God already knows that that's what he's given you. Patch the holes and grow. Use your affections. Use your, your life. Otherwise, if you let your emotions control you, as opposed to your thinking control you, you're going to be tossed about by every trickery, every wave of doctrine, every other thing. And this is not saying don't be empathetic. My goodness, we all get down, don't we? We all feel sad, so that's not what I'm saying. But what were we doing with that? Oh, I just feel bad? Because see, the fact that, that um, this cup's full of holes, you can feel sorry for it, right? You can go, oh, poor cup. It can't do what it's supposed to do. You can even say, bad preacher for drilling holes in that cup. Hopefully it's useful as an object lesson. See, it's serving a second purpose. It didn't even know it had. But you know what? It's still the same cup. But when my mind or this cup is transformed and renewed, it can now serve God. So be excited about who God made you and then work and live for him. And fifth observation, our transformation is not based only on biblical knowledge. Now, that's going to sound terrible coming from a preacher, kind of, kind of terrible coming from a teacher, and you kind of go, well, what do you mean? Well, it is critical, okay? But there's a difference between critical and sufficient. You have to know to be able to do stuff. You can't just wing it. If you don't know what the will of God is, you, if you happen to intersect God's will at a particular point, great. But that's not how... Just knowing what it is doesn't do you any good. I mean, there are atheist biblical scholars who can pound the living daylights out of the most gifted Greek scholar in Christendom. It hasn't changed one whit of their who they are, what they believe, or anything else about them. Because guess what? It hasn't been applied. The Jews, remember? They had tremendous understanding. Can you imagine how challenging it was when Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. The people there were like, what? These people know the law. They know how to keep it. They even added stuff to it to make it even better than God. Oh, no, wait a second. You know, they've added on 17,000 new rules to do all this stuff. What do you mean I have to be better than that? That would be stunning. And they missed it. Not all of them. They missed it. So all that knowledge didn't do them a lot of good, did it? It's just like tossing those patches in the cup. Look, I'm a Jew. I'm doing all my good things. Didn't apply. Completely, totally lost. It's kind of like if I uh, said, look, I'm going to give you a lumber yard, a tool company. All right. Now, build me a house because it's going to get cold. You guys do get cold here, right? I've heard it actually even snows here. I had eight inches of snow in my yard in May. A um, little different. And you don't build me a house. What good is the lumber yard and what good is the tool company? I'm going to be out in the weather doesn't do you any good. You got to apply it. You got to put it together. It's got to be used to make sense. So I love scripture memory, but if scripture memory isn't leading to something, you know, you can win the Bible knowledge bowl. You can, you know, whatever. If it doesn't reach from the head to the heart, if you will, in our, our vernacular. So the knowledge is insufficient. It's critical. All right. So now we're going to quickly move to the last point, and I'll be done. How do we renew our thinking? I'm going to give you six really, really fast things. We can talk more about them there. There's a list as long as your arm, but the first one is be humble. 
Paul never thought he had arrived till the very end when he said, I fought the good fight, I finished the course. He finally got to the point, okay, I don't think I can blow it in these last few days. I think I could, but, you know, he was a little more confident than I am. All the way, all the way. But you have to admit that you're not there yet. And if we make a mistake or we forget something or we do something wrong, humility is required to say, I screwed up. As a teacher, I don't know. Good question. You don't have to look like a genius. Matter of fact, if you go, gee, I don't have all the answers, people might actually listen to you. Jesus didn't go, hey, I'm Jesus. I'm the guy. He said, no, I follow what my father says. I do what my father is doing. I say what my father is saying. He's like, I placed myself under my father to do his will. And whose will are we supposed to be doing? God's will. Let's do it. And if you're thinking I'm making that one up, Paul backs me up in the next verse. He says, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That doesn't mean say, oh, I'm an idiot. No, just don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think soberly. Yeah, I got my weaknesses. I got my blind spots. I got the things that I've got to work on soberly. As God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And God's not going to ask you to change instantaneously overnight. It's not going to happen. Second, be teachable. It's really simple. No matter how much you think you know, be teachable. Whenever I begin challenging any text or anything I do, I first did say, okay, Rick, you don't know this, and everything you think you know is wrong. I start with that. Because if I start going, oh, yeah, 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 I know that. <laughs> Am I going to learn anything? I'm just going to repeat what I've been told. I mean, how many pastors? The seminary professor said so-and-so. Yeah, but I, let me show you this text here. Yeah, but professor so-and-so said, I read that book. And Wait a second. That's not very Berean. That's not very teachable. I can tell you, I'm coming up on 57 years that the Lord pulled me out of darkness. All right? If that's not a long enough track record, you know, okay, somebody else here probably maybe has a few more on it. But 57 years, and I can tell you, in the last 15, I've learned more about God and about His Word than I did in the previous 42. Not because, gee, I have 42 years of experience, I know it all. I don't. Matter of fact, that's when I started going... I don't, th there's too many questions. I need to re rethink. I need to go back and I need to start over. And I need to go just because my Sunday school teacher told me that. I got to be teachable if I'm ever going to learn. So mind transformation requires humility and teachability. The third thing it requires is intentionality. Be intentional. Floating through life purposeless without any effort, without anything that goes along with it, it's just going to build a pattern of inconsistency. And you might hit on something. There may be some sermon that hits you, and you go, wow, that's transformative. That's great. But let's be intentional about it. Um, we got to show what's good and acceptable and perfect. And if you don't know what's good and acceptable and perfect and mature in God's Word, then you, how are you going to show it? How are you going to demonstrate it? you got to know that stuff. And you got to be intentional. And unfortunately, I've heard too many people go, well, I was just led by the Spirit. Now, it sounds like I'm being critical of that. Um, and in a sense, I am, because I hear too many pastors like, oh, we just changed the service around nine times, and the Lord led me to say this and whatever. And I'm like, where's the Spirit in your preparation? You mean God is only leading you when you stand up here? What about the 40 hours that you're putting in studying? He's totally silent then. Really? Really? Got to be intentional. And don't get me wrong. Sometimes God just, you know, grabs hold of stuff and runs with it, and he shows you stuff. It, you're going, wow, I didn't see that. And he's going, yes, now say it. But that's not normative. Fourth, take every thought captive. 
you have to apply what you know to your life. Otherwise, what happens when we get under stress, when we get under difficult situations? What happens to us? Emotions are taking over, and we react. All right? And you suddenly go, wow, I saw my dad do that. Ooh, where did that come from? Because we're not thinking anymore. We're not taking our thoughts captive. And somebody asked me one time, they said, well, how, how do I take thoughts captive? I said, well, it's, it's kind of a spiritual discipline. So I'm going to give you a, a quick, easy way, not easy, a quick way to begin that process if you don't already have something that God's helped you with. When you read God's Word, think about other situations that you've been in. How would this be applicable to me? How might this, I've thought about this differently. How might this apply? And what you're now doing is you're beginning to take God's word and not reading it. You're now taking previous thoughts captive, applying it, which now helps you build in a discipline of your thinking. Ah, I've seen that before. What was that verse? Oh yeah, this is what I need to be thinking about. So the thought gets captive. You start building the, 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 the net, so to speak, the lure, the trap Colin can grab hold of that thought because I have something to grab hold of it with. Otherwise, thoughts are kind of slippery, right? Like eels, they just kind of slip away. But if you start building that into your thinking when you read the scriptures, and I, I love scripture reading, but you know, the Bible really doesn't talk about, I would like you to read me every day. Four chapters, Old Testament, New Testament, and one Psalm, right? Which is nothing wrong with that. It's good to refresh our memories. What, he, what does the psalmist say? I meditate upon it day and night, i.e., I'm thinking about it. So what I'm saying is the way you take thoughts captive is to begin first with God's Word and meditating upon it. Now you have something to grab hold of. Fifth, learn to be disciplined in our life and not float along. That's hard. But when Paul described the Christian life, he did not describe it as showing up and getting a participation trophy. See, that's one of those things that's crept into our thinking. Well, that's what we do with the kids now. Oh, when I was a kid, you, you, didn't, you didn't win, you didn't get a trophy. You might have had a party. That was your participation. I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just saying that there's a difference. Paul's attitude was, if you're an athlete... If you're in the military service, if you're a farmer, you don't just go, hey, I'm going to throw some seeds in the ground, hope something shows up. I'm going to go out and I'm going to run in a race. I don't know. You're going to get your head handed to you. He says, run to win. Don't box the air aimlessly with purpose, with diligence. That is the Christian life. So we have to be learned to be disciplined in that if we're going to have our thinking transformed. And finally, be an imitator. First of Christ, of course. And I, 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 I used to sort of take that statement for granted, but the more I, I, I watch, I'm going, do we know the same Jesus? I don't recognize yours. People have even lost who Jesus is. I, I'm not talking just about any, I'm just talking, I'm talking even pastors. I'm like, are we reading the same scriptures? Because I don't see what you just said. I don't think that that was Jesus, just, that's all he's about. Yes, he's about that, but you know, why don't we put the whole picture of who he is? He's not some, you know, I can use this fluffy bunny version of Jesus. You know, he also talked to the Pharisees and, and you know, his disciples said, you know, they, you made them mad. We can't make them mad. They might go away. Hey, they're going away mad. Well, we can't let that happen. Do you realize that they're, 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 they're going to be angry with you? He says, yeah, let them go lead the blind to the blind. Lead them into a pit. That doesn't sound very loving. This is the Jesus I like over here. So when I say being a rare or trike, make sure you know who he is to begin with. Because that seems to be coming lost but also godly lives around you. Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Find somebody or some people in your life, young, old, whoever they are that you see maturity in, 
And sometimes you just watch them. When I was teaching through 1 Corinthians, I, one of the things that struck me is, you know, Paul is just, he's kind of getting frustrated with the Corinthians. He's like, I've taught you this stuff. You should know better. You should think better. You, and I know you guys want Apollos to come, but he's not going to come. So I'm going to send you my faithful and beloved son, Timothy. And he's going to teach you a new systematic theology class and two things on counseling and how to raise your... No. He's not going to do that. He's going to do what? He's going to show you how we live. We need examples. I mean, if Paul sent Timothy specifically to this church, to these people to say, you need an example, we need examples. Because he's not telling them they didn't know stuff. They don't know how to live stuff. Sometimes you ought to just ask the person when you watch them, you go, why'd you do that? Why'd you do it that way? And how did you know that's what you should have done? And hopefully they will be able to tell you, well, here's why. I, this is my experience with this. That may not be with everybody, but these people or this situation, here's what I've seen, and this is why I did this. Or they might be shocked to go, gee, I don't know. And you've just helped them go, hmm, maybe I have one of these little holes that I need to fix. I got a blind spot. Yeah, I'm just doing this out of reaction because that's what I saw somebody else do. It happened to be working, but why? What's biblical about it? So you might actually be helping them learn and grow. All right. Enough to chew on? Something to build some branches and some leaves and some fruit on? Now you see, you see how dangerous this passage is for me. I talk for another three hours, but you get hungry. So let's conclude. All of us fall short in our biblical thinking. We all do. It's okay. Thinking and learning to apply God's word is hard work. It isn't easy, and I'm not going to tell you it is. It's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. That's okay. God made you that way. He made me that way. He knows that. You realize that, right? God realizes it's going to take time. He says, I know exactly the density of your skull. I know the permeability into your brain. I know exactly how long it's going to take you to, figure, to, to learn this. It's all right. But work at it. And we have to be continuous. Else we will be conformed. We're not allowed to do that. Paul and Jesus didn't call for lazy disciples. And we have to strive to think biblically in every aspect of our life, not just when we come to church or we go to Bible study. Every aspect, when you drive, when, everything. Whatever you do or say or eat or drink, all to what? To your good name and how wonderful you are. No, glory to God. So let us avail ourselves of teaching, of people in the church that can help us, both who have the knowledge and the wisdom and the experience, put it all together and learn how to start applying it, taking those thoughts captive, being humble, being teachable. These are the things we need to do to be transformed in our thinking. And I hope I haven't lost you, but this is all about worshiping God. It isn't just about becoming a better Christian. This is about how are you going to worship God? How am I going to worship God? What are people going to say? Here's who your God is. That God? Man, he's like mine. Let you do whatever you want. Cool. What's sin? You, you do it all the time. It's about worship. So, let our cups become vessels which overflow with living water, not just any kind. Living water, fit for their purpose to refresh our souls, those around us, and to share with a lost people in this world that are living in a very dry and very thirsty land. So maybe we worship God daily in everything we do in our lives. Glory to his name. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we just thank you for who you are. There is so much you have done, so many mercies you have given us. And no matter what we've done in the past, you're still there with us. You're still holding on. You're still guiding us. Let us grow and let us learn and let us be transformed into the the beautiful work and handiwork that can only be wrought through your son. And then together, use the giftedness, use the care, use the passion, use the zeal, use all of the things that you've put together as we serve you, one another, and this world, for it is so desperately sick, it is so desperately wicked, it is so desperately conformed to ideas that are so not you. It is needs to see a people that knows who their God is and lives in honor and worship. And that's as we do as we close. In your name we pray. Amen.